Talk to Be Well. Here with me today are Riley, Matt, and Kavai. These three teens have joined us today to talk about the importance of the current protests and their own mental health and the impacts this is having on them. As a reminder, the information that we provide today during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended nor is it implied to be a substitute for regular medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician if you need to and welcome to Talk To Be Well. Uh, Matt, why don't you kick us off? Tell us, you know, little bit about yourself and you know we're in the middle of a pandemic and now we have the largest anti-racist movement the world has ever seen that has to to be stirring up some stuff for you how you doing yeah uh, hi my name is matt brown uh, i just graduated from twilton high school i use uh, him he his pronouns uh, next year i'm going to be going to uc berkeley i'm pretty excited about that um Right now, it's a, it's a crazy time. Um, you know, you can't really control uh, you can't really control when two big crises overlap, but you can control, you know, how you react to them. So um, it's kind of all about, for me, it's been all about, um, you know, focusing on what's important to me and what I can control right now. I've been doing a lot of organizing in my community with Kavi, um, you know, wearing my mask wherever I can, working safely, uh, choosing where I go and where I don't. Um, so right now it's been all been focusing on like what I can control and kind of pushing away things that I can't control. Um, that's been keeping me as sane as possible right now. All right, Riley, you want to jump in next? Yeah. So my name is Riley Brewer. Um, I just graduated from the Dallas high school. Um, next year I will be attending Arizona state university. So I'm very excited about that. But, um, so I live in a pretty small, very conservative, small town in Oregon. And as you can imagine, um, a global pandemic and a huge, like all these racial tensions that's going over, um, a little interesting here. Um, so things have been different, but there are a lot of really important conversations happening, which is really important, especially like in our high school. Um, and I do have to say that I have been pleasantly surprised for the most part with how people are willing to show up at like the first protest that we've probably ever had in the Dallas, Oregon, and come through and support and voice their opinions and like be willing to be a part of these really tricky conversations. Kavi, how about you? Hi, everyone. So my name is Kavi, um, and I just graduated from Tigard High School. Ooh. Everything's been crazy with like COVID and everything going on right now in the news. Um, so a bunch of my friends, um, everyone's taking it in their own ways. But like Matthew said, um, I've just really been focusing on what I can control and like um, how we can how we can take steps to um, to start trying to heal our community and um, to move our community forward with everything going on um, and just yeah focusing on what we can control and not focusing on all the negatives. Awesome. Well, have any of you taken part in the Black Lives Matter protest? Yeah. So. Um... I haven't been able to get out to Portland uh, as much as I would want to. Uh, you know, there is still COVID going on and I, I still work and, um, you know, it's all about trying to keep my coworkers safe, um, the people that I'm going to see around me. But um, Kavi and I actually last week, uh, we were part of an organizing team that started a student march for Black Lives. Uh, we marched five miles from Tualatin High School all the way down to Tigard High School. Um, but we didn't do like the conventional kind of route through major roads and such. We cut through like big neighborhoods and we went through parks and we went through like one, like the Tualatin city center and then around through Cook Park. And so it was all about, um, it was all about just trying to tell everyone it's like, it's so easy to close the curtains on everything happening in the world and pretend like it's not happening here. And that's really easy because we live in a nice little cozy suburb that's a little, you know, shed it away from all that. Um, but in reality is, you know, these things are happening in our schools, you know, as a person of color growing up through a school system where most of your classmates are white, there are the microaggressions, there are disparities in discipline, there's all those little things that make going through school a little bit harder as a person of color than it is for anybody else. And so we wanted to bring attention to that. And that's why, um, that's why we chose to march the way we did through Tiger and Swalton. Wow. Did you feel the community was supportive? Um, did they, how'd they react? How did people react to you? Did they honk and support? Did they, did you see anybody 
not be supported? Yeah, it was a little, it was a mix of, it was a mix of both. We had a lot of support. The coolest thing was seeing people walking their dogs alongside us and then seeing all this huge crowd of students walking towards them. They join in walking with us. Um, but there were people that uh, were mad that they couldn't make a right turn where they were trying to or that we were blocking the roads. And um, there were people that were mad about that. But for the most part, it was, uh, people were really receptive to it. Um, and we had a lot more energy uh, too um, after some things that went down with our school board the week before. So we had a lot more teachers and students hop in than uh, we had initially thought we would. So it was very, it was very nice to see the community so energized. Kavi, were you part of that? Yeah. So um, I helped organize the um, protest with Matthew in our community. Um, and it was really cool seeing the community show out. Like I saw plenty of teachers um, that I got that I hadn't seen in a while. Um, I saw parents, I saw um, elected officials and a bunch of students come out. I mean, different news, different news sources had us at different numbers, but hundreds of people came out. Um, and I thought it was really cool being a show of unity. Um, we marched from the, uh, the two rival high schools. So we started at Twelton High School, math school, um, and then we walked about uh, five miles uh, to Tigard High School, which is my school. And it was just really a show of solidarity um, and the community coming together to also say um, enough is enough, and we're gonna we're gonna start working to dismantle systemic racism here in our own district. Nice, Riley. How about you? Have you been in any pro? What are protests like in the Dalles in rural Oregon? I'm dying to know. Yeah, so we've had one protest so far. Um, it was a march, and you know, I going into it, I was like, okay, you know, we'll probably get like some good numbers, probably mostly teens, you know, the people who are a little more, um, a little more liberal and willing to like put ourselves out there. But it was like hundreds of people. And some of them were from neighboring towns, like all over. And we marched through, um, all the way through our downtown and back. And we stopped at the police station and it was incredible. Um, that of course has been the only one so far but there have been lots in some neighboring towns. So there was a lot of support. Um, and then of course, you know, in our conservative small town, there was some not supportive people. Um, there were a couple of unfortunate situations that happened just with bystanders or cars passing by. Some of them were a little, little dicey, but um, we actually had I think probably our entire police force out and they were like blocking the roads and they were honestly like helping us through the whole thing and being really supportive. So there were some good conversations and connections that ended up happening through it, which I don't think any of us could have expected. So I think definitely a big step forward just to see everyone come through for that. That's really remarkable. Um, I want to touch on something, Matt, that you said and ask you all, um, you brought the issue of microaggressions and a lot of people don't really understand. They think they understand what that is, but I'd like to hear from your perspectives. What are microaggressions that you've experienced, you've seen? Um, Riley, I know uh, microaggressions happen to women too, all the time. Um, so what is a microaggression? What is that like? Kavi, you want to jump in? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay, so um, microaggressions are sort of like the the subtle off comments, and um, it's not like direct and outward expressions of like racism or sexism, things like that. It's off. It's like the little subtle comments, and the um, it's like um, it's like when I, I was reading a um, I was reading I think it was a news article about this. Um, and this Asian man who had who had immigrated to um, the United States, and like he, um, like his kids who grew up here, um, they they had people like um, when they decided to go into a different field that wasn't like medicine, it would be like the comments like, "Oh, for an for an Asian person, you're a uh, you're 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 going into a different field," or it's like it's like 
acting and making the subtle comments off of like preconceived notions and stereotypes. Um, and it's not always directly calling someone a slur, but it's also like, it's like the hidden racism and the hidden sexism. Um, and microaggressions are present everywhere. And sometimes they aren't intentional. Sometimes it's just a lack of education, but um, they're very present in schools and out in the world today. Um, and to combat them, you just need to, you know, educate yourself and um, try and educate others and just, just be cognizant of what you're saying. Matt, what's been your experience with microaggressions? Well, um, you know, it's it's not uh, not hard to avoid uh, here. You know, I'm uh, I'm a mixed I'm a mixed kid, so my my dad's white, and my mom is a Mexican immigrant, um, and so I grew up in a primarily very white school, um, and it, it starts when you're really little. It's the things that you don't notice, and so like I talk to my mom about this a lot because we have open conversations about these types of things. And one of the things she says is like, you know, like I bet that there were a lot more times that you experienced racism, but like there was one time that I actually spoke out about it and she's like, that wasn't the first time. That was just the first time you were so uncomfortable or confused that you decided to speak up about it. Um, and that was, you know, when I was in like third grade and my like my best friend at the time, I asked if I could go over to his house and he said like his dad didn't like uh, his dad didn't like my people. And so that was confusing, you know, as a third grader. Um, and of course it's, you know, it's something you don't, you know, you're not supposed to understand because you, you're not supposed to know about those things. But I, I like what Kavi said is that, you know, most of the time it comes from a lack of, a lack of education. Um, you know, we say certain things based off preconceived notions because we don't know about um, POC or black history. We don't know about things that came before us. And because of that, we believe certain things about certain people because of the tiny little sliver in information we've gotten in the past. Um, and so that's why um, in our district, we've been really big advocates on, we need to diversify our curriculum starting in kindergarten even. We need students to you know, not ignore color, but learn about color, learn about how color has been presented in the past and why it, you know, why it still presents struggles for uh, people of color today. And be you know, you know with that with the you know this boost in our education we'll be able to better understand where people come from, why certain things are the way they are, um, and from that be able to fix certain problems in our systems. Riley, how about you? So obviously, as a Caucasian female, my experiences will be a lot different than theirs. But um, for me, being a female, what I experience most is getting talked down to. Um, whether it's just because I'm female or because I come across as like a nice, maybe people assume that I'm like naive and, you know, just like a teenage girl, which, you know, brings about like the dumb blonde and the airhead and all those like assumptions that people can come about just by the way that I look or the way that I act. And, you know, obviously anytime that someone is, you know, speaking down to you or saying rude things, you have to take that with a grain of salt because it's not, it's not you that they're talking about. It's, you know, it's their assumptions. And I mean, as a white female, I can't speak towards anything that people of color experience. I can never understand those struggles um, and the microaggressions that they experience, which of course have to be so, so much more magnified than the ones that I have experienced. But Either way, you know, no one deserves that. And that's not fair to assume or say things that are unkind in any situation. And I think that's it's really important context because we all come to this conversation with very different experiences and very different um, places that we grew up in. Uh, I grew up in a biracial family. You would never know that. I, when you look at me, I'm a, I'm a white woman. Uh, but my dad, who's literally my stepdad, but was my dad from the time I was very small was black and growing up in Salem, Oregon, which is not the whitest community on the planet. I mean, it is the whitest community on the planet next to Ben. Um, there were only four families that had a black person in them and we knew them all because um, those were the only people I could hang out with. But I have very early memories of uh, driving while black. And from my experience of driving while black, it would be my dad getting pulled over and the cop looking in the window and going, little girl, are you okay? 
And it didn't occur to me until many, many years later what that was and what that really uh, contextually meant. And that kind of experience now that we look at, it still happens. This was the 1970s and people are still getting pulled over for driving while black uh, and they're getting killed for driving while black. The recent uh, killings that have happened even in Atlanta over the week, I think probably re-energized a lot of those conversations. What are you hearing amongst your friends when you hear about the, the types of atrocities that are happening? What's that conversation? I think it's just mostly it's it's fatigue, right? And it's it's um, a lot of anger. Not you know, not all just at the fact that you know a black man was murdered, multiple black people were murdered. But it's you know, it's great to see. And one thing that I've heard from you know Kavi and I's uh, friend, his name is uh, Abdi. But one of the things he talks about is, uh, and one of the things we've tried to recognize is like, why now? Why is everybody now just protesting? Why are people now just paying attention after, you know, these are the things that, you know, black people have been saying to us for years and years. I mean, this is something that's been on everybody's mind for years. This is something people have been protesting in the past about for years. And just now in 2020, people are actually listening. Um, and we don't know how long people are going to be listening because it already seems like the media has moved on past this. You know, you don't really hear much about the protests anymore, even though they are still happening. Um, it's that's mostly what it is. It's it's a lot of you know fatigue, but it's it's also like it's also like you need to meet the moment right now. It's like we don't know how long people are going to be paying attention for, which is why this is all about acting fast. Um, because people get over things really quickly. People have really short-term memory. And especially if things aren't affecting you directly, you don't have any incentive to care. And so that's why people are really uh, trying to move fast with everything going on. Uh, because while people are still angry, while people are still paying attention, that's when you're actually gonna get things done. And that's a really sad reality. But you know, it's why everybody is moving so fast and pushing so hard right now. Other thoughts? I agree with that a lot, um, but also unfortunately coming from the town that I live in, a lot of times it's a conversation about educating those around me and like, you know, that whole conversation of, hey, like life exists outside of our small town bubble, you know, like real things are happening and just because we have never seen you know, a crime like these in the news in our small town doesn't mean that, you know, this isn't our fight to also, you know, uplift other voices and like educate those around us. So I agree, yeah, with what Matt said, like the fatigue and like why, why now and how on earth is this still happening and how do people think this is okay and how can some people even argue against what's happening, but also just educating some people as to like, this is real and this is happening and this is not something we can ignore. Off of what both of them were saying, um, yeah, it's it's been kind of cool to see. Um, a lot of people are finally starting to take the time to educate themselves. Um, I've, I've seen a quote going around on social media. Um, it's it's from, I believe it was Angela Davis. It's, it's not enough in a racist society. It is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. So um, a lot of people that... I typically would not have seen speak out about this stuff or starting to speak out um, on social media. I'm seeing a ton of petitions being shared, a ton of resources, how you can donate, how you can help. And to what Matt was saying, um, I, I think why everyone's acting so fast, like he said, was um, was because as people only pay attention to things when they're in the latest news cycle. So um, yeah. again, like he was saying, um, it's our, a lot of the protests are already starting to shift out of the news cycle. So that's why people are on social media and um, in conversations with friends and everything are really trying to keep keep these conversations going. And since everyone's just so sick and tired of seeing uh, black people being killed by the police and all of these different um, all of these different injustices happening across the country, um, it's just I don't know. It's there's there's a lot of fatigue. There's um, a lot of people just frustrated um, and people just want to know how they can help. And 
uh, it's, it's been cool seeing a lot of my own friends going, going to protests, um, spreading donation links, donating themselves, um, signing these petitions and everything. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, times are changing and, um, I'm glad, uh, even they should have changed a long time ago, but I'm glad, um, we're starting, um, starting now. So it's interesting that you're all using the word fatigue and fatigue is something that um, I, I think that's a very apt term in this context. And I'm wondering, um, much like this pandemic, we don't know how this ends. We don't know how the pandemic's going to end. We don't know, uh, you know, everybody's got assumptions, um, but we know what good looks like if the pandemic ends. If the pandemic, you know, if we get a vaccine, then we've got our way through this and we can deal with this, yada, yada, this, but what does that look like for Black Lives Matter? What does, what ends the fatigue? What does success look like to you? You know, that's a tough question because there's there's so many things that need to be changed like systematically, bottom up, um, for us to actually, you know, start seeing results. And that, that takes a lot of time. Um, and there's also just so many different variables too. Like, you know, it's, you know, nobody, nobody is immune from, uh, from systemic racism. You know, it's in your schools, it's in the healthcare system. It's, you know, on the streets, it's while you're driving, it's, it's everywhere. Um, I think, you know, the biggest one, you know, that a lot of people hear about is this defund the police talk. And a lot, there's a lot of misconceptions as to like what that is. People think it's like no police force. We just all, you know, you know, every man for themselves, everyone arm up. And no, it's, that's not what it is. It's like maybe it's not the best term to say defund the police, but it's all about, um, you know, how do you how do you build, you know, community safety? And, you know, what what is that? And that means actually, you know, starting where starting where crime actually starts. You know, it's um, it's about people not meeting their basic services. It's about. Uh, people not affording healthcare, not being able to afford to even put food on the table. Um, it starts a lot of the time. It starts with that. And so, like, why don't we start, you know, pulling some money from places and actually investing in people in real, tangible ways, actually helping people out, especially right now too, when unemployment is through the roof and everything is as unstable as it is. Now is the best time to start doing that. I saw the the president bragging about how crime is down you know, a million percent this year. Like, this is why we need law enforcement. They're doing a great job. It's like, no, crime is down because people are in their homes. People are going outside to commit crimes. People are figuring out how to feed their families. That's why crime is, that's why crime is down because we've been locked indoors for three, three months. And so I feel like in terms of that, you know, cause that's the big rallying cry that everybody's talking about. You know, it's about really helping people, um, especially, you know, here in Oregon, um, especially COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting people of color, specifically the black and uh, Hispanic community. Um, and so we need to start. We need to start with that. It, it covers all grounds, but meeting the moment first um, with COVID-19, how to dismantle the disproportionate uh, effects, you know, on communities of color. And especially with policing too, start with that now and then it will spread into other systems. I think another huge part with that is like the education, especially in like speaking from my town and my experiences and also just Oregon in general with like the awful past that we have as a state, you know, the laws that were set forever, like way too long. Um, is that education, you know, that's not being taught in schools. And, you know, there's a reason why, like, the diversity populations in Oregon rival nothing near to other areas of the country. And, like, that's not a topic that's being addressed. And I think starting, like, what Matt was saying earlier about maybe even in kindergarten, you know, at the beginning is, like, start them young. And, you know, like, these conversations, yeah, they're tricky, but they need to be, they need to be being held. In terms of like when when do I think it'll stop? I don't think it's gonna stop for a while. I mean, 
I think people aren't going to stop until they know that politicians and the people who can make change um, will be actively working to dismantle systemic racism at every single level. That's at the school board. That's at the at the state government. That's on the federal level. I mean, there's just so much. I think this um, everything going on right now is just an amalgamation of like years and years of uh, built up racial tensions and oppression that's been happening. And it's just people people have been speaking up for a long, like a, a very, very long time now. And th they just haven't been seeing change. Like every single, there have been so many black people who have been unarmed black people who have been shot by the police and there are protests and people speak out and they're like, we want change. And then politicians and people in high offices say, okay, uh, they, they pay lip service, but they don't actually enact any real change. So people are sick and tired of everything. Um, and I really just don't think it's gonna stop, nor do I think it should stop until until people people make that commitment and until we know that people are gonna start dismantling systemic racism when it's not just in the latest news cycle. I think it's also, Oh, go ahead. Oh no, yeah, I was just gonna say, I think it's like, also important to note, like, I'm glad that you said um, to be like the school board and all of that. But I think um, it's really important to like, even now, like, education is super important. But part of that is teaching people how to educate themselves. The hardest part is like, people are protesting, but they're, you know, around the country, people are getting mad about the wrong things. You know, people are, you know, they see these protests, and then all they see is the one or two rioters or this kind of thing. Um, it's teaching people where to get their information. It's teaching people how to be their own filter and know what's true and what's not. Because especially now, you know, there are people out there that are trying to um, play mind games with people and control what they see. And sometimes you get so caught in your own little bubble of information that you rarely seek other sources of media. And then you're, you know, you're just being fed what you want. You're being spoon fed information. And so I think a lot of the big problems that why people aren't getting as riled up as they should be, you know, why people aren't getting so mad about these things is because people don't know how to access information that they can actually, you know, comprehend or information that will teach them how to see differently. And a big part of that is just normalizing, changing your mind. You know, people get so entrenched in their views, people get so entrenched in their beliefs and especially on both sides, too, you know, when we want to actually make change, when we're so invigorated by things and then somebody else has a difference of opinion, you know, people get so one sided that we start attacking people's views and people go on the defensive. You know, that's not just an attack on someone's views. That's their identity. And they get entrenched in their beliefs and you start weaponizing your politics and then nobody makes change. People just put up walls around themselves. So I think most importantly right now is we need to normalize how to have a change of mind, how to believe something different and create, you know, coalitions with people. You know, you don't have to agree on everything, but if you can agree on certain things like right now that police murders of black men are a problem in this country, if we can convince people that that is a thing, which we shouldn't have to, but we do have to, um, then I believe that we can create a bigger coalition that's actually going to create change, not just when it's convenient for people in office. Because um, we see all these big changes happening in the last month, so many things are happening. But again, where was that when people were still having these conversations? And so that's the whole thing is like, we need to start, you know, not only, you know, teaching people about certain things in the past, teaching people, you know, you know, how to how to learn from themselves. You know, you bring up an interesting question in here about, I know the three of you are all moving on to college. So you're moving away from the public school system. But what role and responsibility does education play in the conversation, Matt, that you're talking about and um, Kavi, that you're bringing up around how we change our mind and how you ingrain change um, and how you have a conversation? I mean, seriously, we have debate clubs. So we literally teach people how to argue and to take strong positions. But at the same time, how are we teaching? Where do we teach people how to do what you're talking about in terms of coalition building and how to listen? Where do we do that? Is it the school system? Yeah. So um, so one thing that uh, we talked about in this resolution that Matt and I were working so hard to pass was the curriculum. 
I mean, change starts at education is one of the strongest ways to enact change and to really start changing people's mindsets and all of that. I mean, going through the school system, I mean, I think um, I was thinking about it the other day and I think I've only read two books from from authors who weren't white. And I think only one book that I've ever read has referenced another religion other than Christianity. Almost every single book I've read has alluded to Christianity. And for people who don't understand that, um, that puts them at a disadvantage. But also, if you don't get to go out there and explore and like learn about different religions, learn about different cultures, learn about different ethnicities, things like that, then how do you expect people to start changing their mindsets and changing what they've grown up with if you don't surround them and um, give them the resource, the tools and resources to um, start learning and start start making that change? I mean, it also starts um, not just education, but, you know, the household. Um, you can't, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent and parenting is said to be the hardest job in the world. <laughs> so I'm not going to judge anybody's ability to parent. But I don't even know, um, you know, who's watching this right now. But to any parent that's watching this right now, I challenge you to have a tough conversation with your kids, whether or not they are white or whether or not they're, you know, you know, students of color or how young they are. It's important to teach them about what's happening right now. I think my favorite part of all these protests and everything is um, going to a protest and seeing a dad with his like five-year-old kid on his shoulders. And then the kid has a, has their own sign and the kid is like starting chants. And it's like, I feel like it's, you know, it's very easy to want to shield, you know, your children from what's happening right now. And, you know, it's hard, you know, you want everything to be peachy and you want everything to be, you know, pretend like there's not a care in the world and, you know, preserve the innocence or whatnot. Um, but when you do that, you, it's, it's, um, it's the same thing as saying, like, I don't see color. It's like, no, that's not what we want. We don't want you to ignore what's happening because it's not like you close your eyes and it's all gone. It's, it's not there. I can't see color. It's gone. That's not what it is. It's all about recognizing that there is an issue. So then we can actually talk about it, pull perspectives from everywhere, even people that dissent. And then we can actually create those broader coalitions that we're talking about. So I think that starts in the household. I also think that the school system has a responsibility to foster those conversations so that kids can go home and talk about, oh, hey, we learned about this. And then um, and talk about that, you know, in your household. Um, it's just all about, you know, giving a little spark. That's, I mean, that's what it is. Whether it's in the household or in the homes, um, you know, start a conversation that'll spread like wildfire. That's such a good point, because it really does start in that education piece and how we and how we approach things and how we look at things. Um, I know we were talking about uh, in at Providence, we were talking about how we can show up in a different way in these conversations. And one of my staff said, you know, maybe we all need to have uh, T-shirts from the Department of uh, UOK, you know, the Department of UOK. Have you seen that on, on Instagram? There's a conversation about what would have happened if when the police approached Mr. Brooks' car, the conversation was, hi, Mr. Brooks, I'm with the department of you okay? So, you okay? Looks like you fell asleep in your car. Let me get you a ride home. I'll be by your house tomorrow to check on you. Here's my phone number. Hey, looks like your ride's here. Good night, sir. And that shift, that fundamental shift in seeing people as a collaborative, we're all part of one humanity, um, as opposed to everybody is a threat, uh, which is, I think, part of where we're living right now, uh, is people are a threat. Um, starts in the home, starts in how you're raised, starts in how schools approach you, how school discipline happens is part of this. So I think I that we're um, bringing up some of the topics. Go ahead, Riley. Sorry. <laughs> um, I really like what you were saying, and I think that goes really well with the arguments around defunding the police. Because if you think about it, police officers are being asked to do hundreds of jobs with very little training. And they, they you know, I mean, you think about domestic violence and child abuse and situations, interactions with the homeless, and, you know, like exactly what you were saying, the Department of BOK. And 
if like what Matt was saying earlier about defunding the police is it's it's breaking down those funds and putting them into places where they're needed and addressing those smaller issues first other than instantly escalating situations and you know resorting to violence and i think that goes well with education because if you think about it covid-19 is reshaping our entire world i mean after this nothing will look the same i mean the way healthcare is shaped is going to be different so why would these protests not do the same for our schools and our society so i think that like while police officers while law enforcement needs to be reshaped i think also there's a piece of that with education because while yes it's so important to have these conversations teachers are already overworked teachers are already being expected to do so much and education is where you know it's where we're shaped as as humans really and i think that there's already a need for more in our schools and there's already a lack of funds and we're already you know desperate and broken as it is so expecting all these changes to instantly happen with you know without like more um more employees and like people who can come in and just be there for that like at my school we don't have a mental health professional we have three overworked counselors who are expected to do your schedules and consult you on your life problems when they don't have the necessary training for that so i think there's a lot that needs to happen for this to be for this to change in necessary ways not just you know expect these conversations to be had when there's a lot that needs to happen before they can change. Well said, well said. So change they say starts with each of you, with all of us, right? Change is an individual thing. We have to change ourselves first. Um, what are the changes that you're looking at as you move into that next phase of your life that not only are gonna help you change you, but also help you take care of you. Uh, this is stressful stuff. You mentioned, and I'm going to go back to fatigue. How are you taking care of yourself? What are you changing about what you do holistically so that when you go to the next phase of your life, um, you're going to take that with you? I think, I think right now, like, <laughs> like I'm having fun. This sounds it sounds weird, but like at the end of all this, it's like I'm I'm having a blast because when you think about it, I have been bored for three months. Uh, you can't really protest a pandemic unless you want to get sick and die from the pandemic. Um, so you can't, you know, all you can do is you know sit at home and read stuff that'll maybe piss you off. But I think now it's like you know like. A part of this is like you know I'm having a, I'm having a good time. This is the stuff that I like, and I'm really happy that you know people are awake and paying attention. So like you know in our own community, in terms of organizing, because more people are hopping on board with the with the mission. Um, but I think I think going back to like what I said way in the beginning, though, I think it's all about you know picking your own fights. Um, you know, it's really important to understand you know, what are the things that you really actually have control over and what are the things that, you know, you can't. Um, and so I think that helps guide my decision-making, you know, of like what things I should get mad about, what things I should, um, you know, let control my emotions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go, you know, mark the streets in Portland because, the, you know, that's a risk involved. But I am gonna I am gonna stay in my own community where I know how to where I know the networks where I know how to organize specifically, um, and I think you know I have a better chance of success organizing in Wallace and Oregon than I do in the greater city. Um, so it's like I said, it's just all about um, you know knowing your limits. You know you want to make a lot of change, but know where your best uh, where your best outlet of change is going to be. Know like where you're going to be successful best. Uh, and even if that's not a big booming city like Portland, even if it's just small towns, wallets in Oregon, um, know that your your organizing is going to make a big impact for the people there. And then hopefully in turn, inspire neighboring school districts to change the way they do things. Yeah. 
Um, so it's all about starting at home, I think. That's a good point. Good point. So I think I have um, the ability to speak to this a little differently, but um, there's one thing in this situation that is undeniable for me, and it's that I have white privilege. I have a lot of white privilege, and that is kind of a loaded statement um, because, you know, it's a fact, but it's a hard thing to come to terms with because I can't change that. I was born the color of skin that I am, and I can never understand the experiences of those around me, especially those um, that are people of color. And while I can never know those emotions and those experiences, the power that I have is that I can uplift those voices. And while, you know, seeing all these horrendous things in the news and the media, these awful situations that I know I will never experience, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of guilt with that, but I can't change that. And, you know, it's taking a step back and understanding that, you know, this is the situation that I was born into and there are certain things that I can change and that's how I treat the people around me. And that's how I work to do good in my community and help those around me. And as much as I would love to, you know, solve systemic racism for the entire world, I know that I can't. And I know that I only possess the ability to help those around me. And that's taking a step back and quieting my white female voice and helping lift up others. So true. So I don't think I have a lot to say off of what they say, because I think they both pretty much hit it all. But um, I think it's it's really important to understand that burnout can be a thing. Um, so uh, it's not only understanding what you uh, what you can control, but also understanding your capacity and focusing on what you can change. And for some people, it's just having conversations with friends and family members. It's um, having those conversations to educate them. And it really looks different for everyone. But, um, but yeah, pretty much just, um, just just focusing on what you enjoy, focusing on what your capacity is, and uh, just avoiding burnout because in the long run, we want, we want allies and we want, we want people who can help long term. So if you need to take a break for a little bit to then be able to do something bigger later on, then um, just know where, just understand where you're at, um, and everything that you do um, will help. So just help in whatever capacity um, seems right for you. I think Are along with that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go. Um, no, go right in. Along with the burnout thing, I think the most powerful thing you can do to address and help your mental health right now, especially during a pandemic where we're all in quarantine, is turn off your phone. There's so much negativity and yes, it's important. You know, you need to understand that you can't ignore what's going on, but sometimes you just have to throw your phone across the room and not look at it. You know, take a breather and understand that like, this is my situation and like I'm living in the now and I am not there and I can do everything in my power to try and help that. But you do need to take care of yourself first and understand that, you know, your mental health is important and burnout is real and you can only do what you have to give. So well said, so well said. Um, I'm gonna take a leap and assume that you all are registered to vote, right? How important are elections in movements like this and in moving things forward? You know, you brought up school boards and things. How important is it to vote? What would you say to young people who maybe don't think voting's important? is so important because that's so that's i mean that's part of the education piece it's um it's you know it's hard you know to watch people get really mad about certain things and then realize you know that many of these people didn't vote because a lot of the things that people are asking for um you know they'll find through elected officials that they didn't even expect you know and a couple of those i'm gonna start off is like the school board for example 
you know, the school board has a lot of power when it comes to, you know, curriculum, when it comes to teaching contracts, when it comes to A, B, C, and D, everything, every aspect about school, you know, has a vote from the school board members. Um, and that's, you know, that's super important. I think students, you know, are really, you know, students get really mad about certain things, but it's the same students that don't vote in these elections. So these are really important too. And another really important position, you know, is the district attorney. I went to like an ACLU um, little conference thing a couple of years ago and I, I did this workshop. It was like the most powerful elected leader that you've never heard of. And it's the district attorney, right? They have, you know, when it comes to court cases, they have the power to decide what cases to prosecute. They have the, the power to decide, you know, what they don't prosecute. And when things get in the courtroom, they have the power to withhold evidence. They get to control what evidence goes and gets shown to the jury. They have so much power when it comes to these certain things. And so if you want to get a cop prosecuted, you know, for murder, you vote for a district attorney that's going to uphold those things and that's going to prosecute cops that kill. And so that's the really important thing is, you know, it's like these elected positions, there's so much power when it comes to the things that we're talking about, but people don't vote. You know, granted, I'll give it to people that are tired of using the political system because the, you know, the political system is moved slow. But, you know, when it comes down to real systemic change, you got to elect people that are going to bring that about and not just make empty promises. Yeah, well, Matt said, that's, that's, I mean, that's what it comes down to, really. <laughs> I mean, we can make as many signs as we want and we can, you know, march as many miles as we want. But at the end of the day, it comes down to political change. And at the end of the day, it comes down to don't vote for racists, you know, use your voice. This is like the one, the one true change that you can really make. And a lot of people, you know, they don't think it matters. Like, oh, so many people vote, my vote don't matters. But like, Kate Brown, our governor, she won by eight votes. Like, that's not nothing, you know? That's eight people who decided to go out and vote and use their voice for good. And, you know, that matters. It's also one of our, one of our mentors uh, is a school board member, his name's Ben Bowman. Um, one of the things he likes to tell Kavi and I all the time is about, you know, he'll give us lessons <laughs> all the time. His most important one recently was, uh, who were the two most important, were you going to talk about this, Kavi? Yeah. <laughs> who were the two yeah. most important people in the civil rights movement? It was MLK and President Johnson. And that was because, you know, you need to have, and this is something even Obama has talked about recently, is that, Yes, you need, it's a two-part thing. You need the social movement. You need people aware. You need people marching and picket signs and whatnot. You need to invigorate people on the ground level. But you also need people that know the system and know how to work the system. They talk about LBJ knew, he was an extremely powerful and effective legislator because he knew what people wanted. He knew what people, you know, didn't want it. And he knew how to beg, you know, barter all of that to get things done and get things pushed through you know he would he would you know award people for making the right vote but he would punish people uh for voting wrong or spiting him and so it's that mix of the two is you know getting that ground level support and everybody on board is so mad enough that you get a bill on the table and then you need to vote people in that you can trust will know how to work the system and build those coalitions that we talked about to get people moving in the right direction it's a two-part process because, you know, right, like I always said, you know, we can march and march and march and march and march, but you can't vote for racists. <laughs> you got to vote for people you can trust. So, uh, off of, yeah, off of what Matthew was saying, um, I mean, he kind of took the example I was going to use, but, um, but like protesting and speaking up alone isn't going to make anything better. You have to uh, both use your voice and also vote for people who will, who will listen. So it's um, it's you you have to vote for candidates who have commitments to actual solutions while continuing to protest. You have to like fight for change and vote for those who are willing to listen. Because if you if we have all this activism going on, but we have a bunch of people in office who aren't going to listen, then what's the point of all of it? Nothing is going to change if you don't have the right people in office to actually make that change. So um, it's not just voting and it's not just speaking up. It's a combination of the two. Um, 
to get things done. That's how everything's been done in this country. Um, that's how everything's done worldwide. So, uh, so vote, please, please, please vote um, and continue to speak up. Um, and then hopefully we'll be seeing some actual change happen. You know, I can think of no better call to action to round out this podcast than, than what the three of you have just said. I want to make sure that we've touched on everything that you wanted to talk about today. Any final thoughts? Uh, your call to action was fabulous. Yeah, just vote. <laughs> I think a lot of people, you know, have this preconceived notion, and rightly so, that, you know, government doesn't work and politics don't work. But, you know, if you're mad about something, go out and do something about it. You can all, everybody protests in their own way, whether it's spreading petitions on social media, donating, um, you know, and when it gets safe enough, you know, make calls for, make calls for people you believe in. Go on the ground level and knock some doors, put a, you know, yard sign in your lawn. Um, I think if, you know, if you're really angry about things going on and, you know, you really believe, and you do, but you like, you have to believe that you have a stake in this, you know, any election to get involved. You know, the legislature always has its doors open. Um, and just, yeah, vote, <laughs> please <laughs> vote. And at the end of the day, I think most importantly, like, don't forget to take care of yourself. You know, reach out to those around you and like check in with yourself and others because voting is very important, but so is mental health. <laughs> And the, the last little bit, um, if you didn't if you didn't get this by now, please vote and at every single level because local elections are just as important as federal elections. They impact your communities sometimes even more than voting on a federal election. So please, please vote. Please take care of yourself. Continue, um, continue speaking up. Continue to educate yourself. Continue educating others, and just. And just keep keep doing everything that you're doing because um, power doesn't come from just one person speaking up and one person voting. It comes from large amounts of people voting and large amounts of people speaking up. Real change only happens when we work together to um, to fight for it. So keep fighting for change. Keep taking care of yourself, and uh, let's let's see some let's see some progress. Well, I want to thank you. You are amazing, and thank you so much for joining me today on Talk to Be Well. And to everybody who's been listening and sending in questions and thoughts, um, you've given everybody a lot to think about, but you've also given pieces of inspiration to people who really need to hear that right now. Um, if you're looking for help, if you've got issues with mental health, if you're struggling with that fatigue, there are resources right out there for you. Go to providence.org, go to worktobewell.org, and there's plenty of resources. But I think our most important message today is as we go into this election season, as we continue with these protests, please get engaged in your community and go out and vote. I'm Dr. Robin Henderson, and this is Talk To Be Well. Thank you.